Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Last Sunday of uh, June. Uh, great to see you here. Our passage today is, uh, drives us to actually talk about the Holy Spirit. So I thought, uh, rather than talking about what a good helper is, let me give you an example of a bad helper with <laughs> Parks and Recreation. I didn't know March had 31 days. Okay. It might help us appreciate the Spirit of God a little bit more, right, than we do. I'm calling this message today kind of uh, grasping the role of the Holy Spirit. So let me pray for us, and then we will dig in. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for uh, your love for us. Thanks for sharing us uh, with us the stuff we need to know to endure down here, to thrive down here, to live down here. And we pray that as we open your word, that we would understand it, we would be able to apply it, and we would learn from it, and we would go out these doors, maybe changed a little bit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I actually think, when you think about it, that the Holy Spirit might be the most mysterious, most misunderstood, and in many cases, maybe even the most neglected member of the Trinity. Uh, Lloyd John Ogilvie, who at one time was the Senate chaplain, uh, wrote these words. Sadly, many Christians settle for two-thirds of God. God the Father is way up there somewhere, uh, aloof and apart from our daily lives. Uh, Christ is out there somewhere between them and the Father. Holy Spirit is some kind of vague force or impersonal power that they hear about but do not necessarily know intimately. Well, if that rings even remotely true for you, I hope that will change today and maybe today's message is a good place to start. Uh, let me just frame the context for you, which I always like to do, uh, just uh, so we don't do what's on the screen, right? This is Jesus last night before his crucifixion. And during this passage we're looking at, Jesus is on his way with the 11 disciples. They've gone to the Passover dinner uh, in the upper room, and they've left the upper room, and they're now making their way on foot to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is teaching them all along this path. They are worried because of some things he has said. He said he's going to leave them, and he's going back to the Father. He also told them in the passage he just looked at <laughs> that uh, I'm not your, uh, you're not my servants anymore. You're my friends. I love you, um, and, but uh, you should know something. <clears throat> the world hates my friends, so you're in for a, a little bit of a ride through life. And so they got that going on that he's just told them. Um, but he's trying to get them ready for his departure, and sorrow has filled their hearts. So to offset the sorrow that they're feeling, Jesus does a few things that night. First thing he does is he actually demonstrates his love for them. Remember back in chapter 13, he actually reaches down, washes all their feet, and he says, as I've done to you, you should do so to each other. As I've loved you, you should love each other. And then beginning in chapter 14, he detailed a lot of different promises to them, uh, let not your heart be troubled, he said. And he goes on to tell them, yeah, yeah, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to be coming back and getting you. He also tells them about prayer, uh, that whether he is there or not, they will be able to talk to the Father directly in Jesus' name and get anything they're going to need to, as they follow him. He also says, greater works than I have done. You will do, which sounds kind of amazing, really, if you think about what Jesus did while he was here. He also promises them his peace and his joy. And then as if to balance all of those promises, he warns them. 
yeah, you're my friends, but you've got to know the world hates my friends. So just a heads up on that, dudes. <laughs> That's going to probably cause them to sink a little bit deeper into this sorrow, right? So immediately now, in what we're about to read, Jesus wants them to know that they are not going to be enduring this hatred from the world all alone. Even though he's leaving, something's going to be sent to them to get them through the hostility this world has. Uh, he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, who will live within each of them and enable them to handle whatever happens to come their way. With that in mind, we're actually beginning our reading today in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 7, and then we'll read the first 15 verses in chapter 16. Here we go. Jesus speaking. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. What's he talking about there? Well, he's going to tell us. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will, not, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. <clears throat> Heard about a guy years ago who uh, wanted to buy a chainsaw. He went to a hardware store. The salesman showed him several models. But then he went and took off the shelf the best one. According to the salesman, it had the latest technology, and uh, then came the promise, the, the sales pitch. This chainsaw can cut 10 cords of wood per day. So the man bought it, took it home, came back the next day to the hardware store and said, man, I'm exhausted. I don't know how this thing is supposed to work, but I was only able to cut three cords of wood with this chainsaw. I, with my handsaw, I could do four cords of wood. What's going on here? Salesman said, I don't know. That's weird. Let me, let's, let's take it out back. Check it out. Took it to a wood pile, and he pulled the cord. The engine started. You know what a chainsaw sounds like. And the customer heard it too. And he jumps back and shouts, what, what's that noise? 
Yeah, can you imagine trying to cut cords of wood with a chainsaw, never even starting it? Imagine how exhausting that would be to cut firewood with an implement like that without starting the engine. And yet, it seems like Christians every day try to live victorious Christian lives without necessarily tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not always easy understanding God. I'll admit that. Some of us kind of get the God the Father concept, right? We've all had dads. Most of our dads have probably been pretty good. They weren't perfect, but they tried their best. For the most part, there's a few bad dads out there, but mostly they're pretty good. So we get the concept of God the Father. Jesus, God the Son, we get that too, because all of us are children of somebody, so we understand that relationship. But when we come to the Holy Spirit, what's it all about? It's not always an easy relationship to kind of grasp. So today, there's a lot of verses we want to kind of go over and cover, so I just want to give you some principles that emerge generically from this passage about the Spirit. Principles that sort of form a composite portrait of Him, and then next week I'm going to home in on a smaller section of what we read today and dig into that. So here's some things about the Spirit we need to, to, uh, to know. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. Does that surprise you? It's not an it. It's a he or him. In the section we just read, there are 13 personal pronouns that Jesus uses to refer to the Holy Spirit. He will do this. He will do that. Then he will do this other thing. He calls him him, personal pronouns. As an example, let's look at uh, verse 7 in chapter 16. Jesus speaking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send, notice, him to you. Last time I checked, personal pronouns are only really reserved for persons or living things, not inanimate objects, not a force, but for living creatures, males and females. About the only other exception I can think of are boats and storms, right? We tend to call them a he or she and give them names. But other than that, it's for persons and other living creatures. And people can be identified by their personal pronouns. Think about how the weird this would sound. Well, the wind blew yesterday. He was strong. Did you say that? Or, I need air in my tires. She keeps my car going. No, you wouldn't use personal pronouns for air or that. You don't use personal pronouns for a force. Here's what you get to know. Got to know. There is not a single version of Scripture or translation of Scripture that is respectable and responsible that ever refers to the Spirit as an it, but always as a him or a he. Why? Because the Spirit is a person. I tell you that because during church history, there have been those who have said, well, the Holy Spirit is an it, a force, a presence, not a being and not a person. And as far as we can tell, it kind of began back in 318 AD by a guy named Arius, who said the Spirit of God is not a person, but an essence, an essence of God that God uses. Well, that so upset the church that in 325 A.D., they all got together as the church leaders and came together at Nicaea. You probably heard of the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. It was drafted in response to what they called the Arian heresy. It denied the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And since Arius, there have been others who have followed the cue. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, deny the personhood of the Spirit. They say, and I quote, the Holy Spirit is not an intelligent person but an impersonal, invincible, active 
force that finds its source and reservoir in Jehovah God. The Mormon church teaches that God has a physical body, that God was more a man who became a, a, a God. And by the way, all Mormons believe that they're going to become gods and goddesses someday, just like God. They say that God has a body of flesh and bones and blood and has the perfect eternal physical body and that Jesus is his literal physical son conceived by sexual intercourse. Lucifer, according to them, is Jesus' brother. Uh, the Holy Spirit, in their view, is a separate force that God sort of uses to accomplish his purposes. Christian science is another one founded by Mary Baker, Eddie Glover, Patterson Fry. Obviously had some problems with men, <laughs> but she's uh, had many of them. Uh, but she says, for her, she says, the Holy Spirit is an impersonal principle. It's, a, it's the divine science within Christian science, just a force. So yet here in Scripture, we read personal pronouns and personal attributes. Notice what it's, we see in John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Bear witness means to reveal or give testimony. We're told in 16.8 that the Spirit will convict. In verse 13, we're told that the Spirit will guide and speak and declare. In verse 14, we read that He's going to glorify and take and declare. These are not things an impersonal force does. They're attributes of a person. He will do these things that only a person can do. And there's more. In Romans 8, we find out that the Spirit has a mind. In 1 Corinthians 12, we discover the Spirit has a will. In Romans 15, the Spirit loves. In Romans 8, the Spirit prays as, uh, as He intercedes for us. The Spirit can be grieved. That's Ephesians 4. Hebrews 10 tells us He can be insulted or outraged. In Acts 5, we hear that the Spirit can be lied to. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says He can be quenched. Now, a mere force can't do those things or have those things done to him or it. You can't say, well, I grieved electricity today. I lied to gravity. No, no atomic force is going to love you, right? You can't say, I grieved my plants today. They're really bummed out. I guess I'll have to turn over a new leaf. I don't know. Sorry about that. Okay. Anyway, there's, these are attributes only reserved for people or persons. So the Holy Spirit's a person, not a human person, but a person nonetheless. Now, I think that not only do cults err in this, but I think sometimes even we evangelical believers often err when it comes to the Spirit. I'm going to explain that by reading something to you that was written about 100 years ago by a fellow named R.A. Torrey. I wrote a great book on the Holy Spirit, and he writes this. If we think of the Holy Spirit only as an impersonal power or influence, then our thought will consistently be, well, how can I get a hold of and use that Holy Spirit. But if we think of him in the biblical way as a divine person, infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely tender, then our thoughts will consistently be, how can the Holy Spirit get a hold of and use me? So the issue really becomes an issue of our willingness to surrender, to submit to him. He indwells you, Christian, to lead you through this life. Holy Spirit then is a person. The second thing to note from our text is this. The Holy Spirit is not only a person, he's a divine person. Now I think nothing will heighten our respect 
more for the Holy Spirit than to realize that this, this person in the Holy Spirit is God. Third member of the Trinity. He's co-equal. He's co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. He appears in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, as God creates the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. So he's seen and mentioned throughout Scripture. There's a little hymn, a doxology, created uh, to embody this. Churches still sing it today. It's written back in 1673. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And they made it rhyme, but I would have... I would admit to you that the phrase Holy Ghost probably isn't the best translation. It's an old translation. Holy Spirit would probably be better, so we don't spook our kids. That's all I'm saying. A little girl in California goes to church with her parents, and they sang that doxology. After church, she asked mom and dad, why does God not like the West Coast? They said, what? What are you talking about? No, he said, we sang today in church. Praise Father, Son, and the whole East Coast. Holy Ghost might work for a song, but I think in modern times, Holy Spirit is probably the better. You can use whatever you name you want. He is a divine person. You should also know that throughout history, not only have there been some who've denied the personhood of the Spirit, but the deity of the Spirit also. In 200 AD, an individual from Libya, a priest by the name of Sibelius, taught that God is not three persons in one. Instead, he's just one God that just goes by different names, depending on his, you know, predilections at the moment. That God is sometimes the Father, sometimes He's the Son, sometimes He's the Spirit. These names are just three names of forms of God. It was kind of a, it was called modalism, three modes of God. But we read here in Scripture, 1526, that Jesus speaks of the Spirit of God as coming from the Father, simultaneously, not, a, not as a mode, but simultaneously from the Father, sent by the Son. And then in 16, 7, and 8, the Spirit is dispatched or sent by Jesus the Son to the world and is active within the world. So the Holy Spirit is divine. It's God. He's God. He's active in the world. He comes from the Father and has been sent by the Son. Let me show you something from Acts chapter 5, just to lock this in. Uh, there's a scripture sometimes that's overlooked a little bit, but I wanna, want you to notice it today. It's uh, Acts chapter 5. I think you'll know the story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have, you have not lied to man, but to God. So if you were to draw a circle around two things in that passage, you've lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3, and then in verse 4, you've lied to God. Connect those dots, and you see the, the connection. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're basically lying to God. Peter had no problem putting those two things together. Holy Spirit is God. He's a person, and he's a divine person, one-third of the Trinity. Now, I do not totally understand how the Trinity works. If somebody else does know that, you're welcome to come up here and take this headset and explain it to us all. It's complicated. How do you fathom the unfathomable? How do you 
describe the indescribable. It kind of delights me, though, that there's some things about God that I just don't get. I don't fully understand it. It makes me realize how higher and different, beyond me, transcendental he is. So I get what it says. Do I completely understand the, the intricacies of all of it? No. But the Bible describes one God manifest in three different persons, all of them being God, all of them being co-equal, all of them being eternal. Third thing that emerges from our text is this. Holy Spirit is a discreet person. He's discreet. Another word might be inconspicuous. The idea is that he's not walking around drawing a lot of attention to himself, but he's pointing people to someone else, and that someone else is Jesus. I want you to notice that. Let's check it out. Here's what Jesus says. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about himself? No, about me, Jesus says. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. No, they don't believe in me, Jesus. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit's kind of like, I don't know, a stage director at a play. He's got the spotlight, but he doesn't shine it on himself. He's up there. He's not going, hey, you know, I'm the director. Let's shine a light on me. Let me, let me, let me show you how great I am. No, he, he shines the light on the main character, Jesus Christ. And he wants all of the applause to go to that main character, as if to say to the audience, ladies and gentlemen, meet Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's all about Christ, not about himself. You never read about the Holy Spirit going, hey, wait a minute, I think I should get a little more attention here. I want a little more notoriety here. I want a little bit more fame here. He's always discreetly pointing the way to Jesus because he's all about glorifying Jesus and his work. You've probably seen buildings that have floodlights that project light onto the buildings. What's interesting is those lights are not designed for you and me to fixate on the lights, but upon the buildings. People might be drawn to the structure or to the entrance or to the decoration adorning the building, but the purpose of the light is to have people zero in on the buildings, the structure not the lights. So the Holy Spirit is like the floodlight that makes Jesus plain and understandable to people so they can see him and glorify him, right? So any person, any group, any church, to find out whether they're really kind of engaged with the Spirit, what do they emphasize? Do they emphasize Jesus? Is it all about Jesus like the Holy Spirit is? Or is it all about the Holy Spirit himself? They're fascinated with the Holy Spirit. So my point is that if you've got a church that's only focused on the Spirit, you might have a church that's a little bit out of balance because what the Holy Spirit is doing is trying to get your fixed attention on Jesus Christ. Fourth thing I want you to notice, the Holy Spirit is a helpful person, helpful. Two times in this passage, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper. The idea of a helper is someone who is called alongside you to assist you. If you look this up in the Amplified Bible Translation, here's how the helper is described. 
a helper is one who is called to stand by you continually, constantly, and take part in anything in which his help is needed. It's kind of a beautiful description of the Holy Spirit, how he works. He's called to stand by you constantly, ready to take part in anything that you need that's helpful. God the Father and God the Son knows that you and I need all the help we can get down here. And that resulted in the dispatching of the Holy Spirit to be in us. You ever feel like the world is just so overwhelming? Temptations, the trials, the pressures, the bad things, sad things that happen? Or maybe just that sin is so massive, I'm trying to have a tough time getting out from under it? What's the key? What's the secret? I believe it's this, the Holy Spirit. Not only to have him inside of you, but to actually be filled with him. Let me give you an example. It's actually um, not my original. D.L. Moody used this about 100 years ago, speaking to his congregation about the Spirit of God. And he held up a glass, an empty glass, to the congregation. And he said, how can I get the air out of this glass? And somebody in the audience said, well, you could, you could, you, you could suck all the air out. You could, you could get a vacuum and suck all the air out. He says, well, it won't work because if you suck all the air out, you create a vacuum and the, and the, glass, the glass would implode. It'll shatter the glass. A few other ideas came along and none, none of them seemed to work. Finally, Moody said this. Actually, it's pretty easy to get the air out of this glass. And he took a pitcher of water and he filled it up. And then he said, the secret to the victorious Christian life isn't trying to suck all of the sin you have out one sin at a time but to be filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. If you do that, there's no room for anything else, including sin. Pretty cool example. The Holy Spirit is a helpful person. He will be our helper. Well, how in the world does God the Holy Spirit help? Good question. Let's look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. So you and I really have a hard time understanding Scripture unless God, the Holy Spirit, unlocks it, unlocks the meaning, unlocks the meaning of the individual Scriptures to us. I venture to say that, that when we started teaching through the Gospel of John back in, what, 2021? Two years ago, my guess is there are some things about the Gospel of John that you and I probably did not know all that well. But you know them today. And the reason you know them today is this. God has used the Holy Spirit to unlock for you the truth from Scripture, or the truth in a book, or a truth in a message, or a truth in a, a, group, a small group discussion. He has illuminated that to you. He gave you bite-sized chunks of truth, and you go, oh, okay, I get that now. Have you ever read through a scripture that you've read before? But then suddenly this time, given your situation, you see something from it that you never saw before? You go, oh, 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 okay, I understand. I see how that applies to what I'm going through right now. I get, I, I get what that means right now. That's called illumination. Two words you need to know. One is inspiration. The second is illumination. Inspiration is what happened when God gave a whole bunch of guys, the Spirit of God, to write down scripture for us. And then God enabled us to be able to read those words and be illuminated from them. Scripture is now complete, not a whole lot of inspiration going on. 
an illumination is happening even today when you read and the Holy Spirit unlocks the meaning and truth and the application to you. Martin Luther said it this way, the Bible will forever remain a closed book unless God opens and explains to us the Scripture. Now, the two guys on the road to Emmaus after Jesus rises from the dead, and then Jesus is walking along with them and says, hey, yo, what's going on here? And, and they, they go, oh, well, first of all, they didn't recognize Jesus, but then they said, well, you must be the only person on the planet Earth who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem. And so Jesus then opens up the Scriptures to them. And when they get there, and they finally realize it's Jesus, and then Jesus departs, they said this, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us and opened up the Scripture to us? That's illumination. They got it. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all the truth. Now, a little point I want to make before we slip on to the next description. Um, there's an important article that's here in our passage. And in the ESV translation, which is my go-to, the English Standard Version, it, it's often mis missing from other translations, but the ESV uses it, and, it, and I think it's the, it's the right one because it's in, it's, in, it's in the uh, Greek. He says, he will guide you into all the truth. Some translations, some translations just say, he'll guide you into truth. Well, the problem with that is that it could be interpreted as just generic truth. All truth, any kind of truth, whatever. But in the original language, there's that, out, that article. And that article, the truth, is referring to the specific truth centralized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that could definitely be a reference to the, the New Testament at large. I mean, Jesus promises those disciples that the Spirit, this helper, is going to bring to their remembrance everything that he has said, which enabled them to write it down for us. Yeah, the Spirit's going to guide you into truth related to and central to the person and work of Christ. You'll notice in the New Testament, those disciples did a pretty darn good job of not only listening to Jesus, but also listening to the Spirit and connecting all the dots, including how they connected the Old Testament passages to some stuff that Jesus actually said. Pretty amazing what the Spirit did. Fifth thing, Holy Spirit's a dynamic person. Not only is he a person, not only is he a divine person, not only is he a discreet person or helpful, he, he gives you and me the dynamic, the power to pull life off, to live in a way that would be impossible otherwise. He gives you a, dynam, a, dynamite, a dynamic above and beyond what is naturally afforded to you and me. Now take it back to verse 26, if you'll indulge me, look a little more at it. When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's going to speak to you about me, Jesus says. He's going to reveal to you who I am. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to bring testimony into your life about me, Jesus Christ. That's just step one. That's just phase one. But look at the very next verse, because we tend to want to skip over that one. And you, he's talking to the disciples, will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Well, that's phase two. Holy Spirit's going to bring testimony about me, Jesus, to you guys. Then the Holy Spirit's going to bring testimony through you guys about Jesus to other people. And when that happens, when we represent Jesus Christ to this world, it's not necessarily going to be a pretty picture, based on what Jesus brings up in his very next thought. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Why would they fall away? Here's why. 
Because when you start testifying about Jesus Christ, they're going to kick you out of synagogues. They're going to tell you you can't come to church anymore. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, whoa, will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So the hatred of the world is going to be a direct result of you and me and I testimony, our testimony to the world about Jesus Christ, thanks to the Holy Spirit infecting us with the ability and the desire to share it. But the ability for us to give a testimony with any kind of power, with any kind of impact, is because of the Holy Spirit doing it and work through us and in us. So here's the promise, and I'll expand on it a little bit. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus has now died and risen from the dead. Jesus has spent a lot of time meeting with hundreds of his followers. So what we're going to read is before Jesus ascends into heaven. Notice what he says to the disciples. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if this was in modern times, you might say, well, we'll be witnesses in false church. In D.C., in Maryland, New York, Los Angeles, Europe, Asia, Africa, everywhere there's people on the globe, wherever you go, you're going to receive power to be able to testify. And then Jesus gave them specific marching orders. Remember the Great Commission? Go into all the world. But when he gave that commission, according to Luke, says, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere yet. I want you to go, but I don't want you to go yet. You go wait until you receive power from on high. In essence, waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. Wait till you get the power to actually give you the energy, the emphasis that you need. Wait first, then you get the equipping from the Holy Spirit, then go. Don't go without. Otherwise, you'll be like the guy with the chainsaw, dragging a chainsaw around. Wait for the power, then go into the world. Years ago, there was a captain, a valiant captain. His sword was dreaded by his enemies, and the king wanted to know what was so special about this sword that it was... He was, uh, the sword was dreaded by everybody. So he demanded to see the sword, and uh, some guy brought it to the king. The king looked at it and said, I see nothing special about this sword. It's just a sword. I've seen thousands like it. So he gave it back to the guy, told, gave it back to the captain. The delivery guy told the captain what the king said. The captain smiled and said, well, the king has made an error. He only examined the sword. Had he looked at the arm that wields the sword, then he would understand the mystery. Sometimes you look at people that God uses and you go, man, I just don't get it. It's because you're only looking at the sword, dude. A lot of times it's just not that sharp, but you fail to look at the arm that wields the sword. And I'd say the perfect example from, from, from Scripture is Peter. And E hit this so well during his resurrection series back in April. What was Peter like before the resurrection? Before Pentecost? He's a brash outspoken, crazy guy. <laughs> he couldn't even give his testimony, though, when Jesus was uh, being tried. He couldn't give his testimony about Jesus and being a follower of Jesus to a little servant girl. But, as he noted, compare that to the Peter boldly preaching in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. What happened? Two things, the resurrection and Pentecost. In the Bible, says as much. It says, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the secret. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, 
If you're a believer, that's happened. That's never going to change. But as a believer, with the Holy Spirit inside of you, Paul says, and this is present tense, be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians, he's constantly wanting us to be filled with the Spirit. So by our willingness to be led by the Spirit, to empty ourselves of our will to accomplish God's will, we unlock the power of the Holy Spirit that's there to deliver it. So let me pray for us. And next week we'll dig into a little bit more specifics on some things that Jesus says that are kind of blow us away. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your instruction. Uh, little do we know that as we open this passage, we were going to see that there are at least heretical comments about the Holy Spirit that you sent to live in us that are just untrue and that the early church recognized that and they usually all these creeds that they created were basically because of some heresy that popped up and you allowed that stuff to be dealt with and corrected so that we would have solid truth and you said you would be leading us through the Holy Spirit into all the truth so we thank you for that as we Take this in. Maybe we have a newfound appreciation for this spirit that you have given to us. And sometimes we don't think about him that much. But he's here. And when he speaks, he's speaking what Jesus and what God the Father is wanting us to know. So appreciate him and love him because he loves us. He is on our side. He is standing ready to help. Thank you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.